and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and sat, on, sat and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And crowds, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And on that day, Jesus rides into town on a donkey. And what the people around didn't understand was that on that day, Jesus began his last week of life and ministry on this earth. And to begin that last week, he takes two of his disciples and he says to them, Go into town and find a donkey that's tied up and it's full and bring it with you out to me here just outside of the city. And that may have seemed kind of strange to them. seems kind of strange to me. Jesus, who we've read all about in all the New Testament, we never find that he ever rode anywhere. Not that he maybe didn't, but it's never recorded. We never see a time he rode on a, on a horse. We never see a time he rode on a mule or a donkey. We never see a time that he rode in a chariot. But on this day he takes his disciples and he says, go into town and get a donkey that you'll find tied there and bring it outside of town to me because he knew what he was going to do. Because riding into town that day on a donkey was very important. It was more symbolic than we might think. The donkey wasn't a means of transportation that day. The donkey was a means of the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing to fulfill prophecy that day. And he says, you go and get you go and get that donkey and bring it out because I'm going to ride into town on a donkey because I'm going to show myself as being the, de the promised deliverer of Jerusalem. I'm going to show that I'm the one that's a fulfillment of prophecy. You see, the people of Egypt, of Israel rather, had lived with a promise for almost 500 years. For 500 years, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the uh, prophet Zechariah had written this and they had held on to this as a promise. And the promise was this from Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And says, I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim and the horse of Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and, is, and, and from river to the ends of the earth. They had been waiting for the day for the fulfillment of that prophecy. That day that their king would come and, and take dominion from river to the ends of the earth and say from sea to sea, this is our king, this is our God, he's in control He's our Savior. They've been waiting for the fulfillment of the prophecy. And on that day, Jesus, for the first time in his three and a half years of ministry, openly declares that he is the promised Messiah. He had said earlier when Peter had said, we know who you are, you're the son of living God. He said, that's right, but don't tell anybody about it. But now on this day on Palm Sunday, he does something different than he'd ever done in his entire ministry. 
Remember when the demons would shout, I know who you are, the Son of God. What would Jesus say to them? Be quiet. Don't speak. Because his time wasn't yet. But now on this day, he does something different. He sets the gears in motion. He tells his disciples, you go get the donkey. You bring it here. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he comes on the, on the back. They put coats on the, on the donkey. And he gets on its back and he begins to ride into town. And by doing that, all of Jerusalem knew what he was doing. He was open, openly declaring that he was the promised Messiah. That he is the fulfillment of prophecy. And friends, don't miss the point. The crowds understood the symbolism on that day. They had been praying for that day for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the crowd that day was filled with excitement. What did they do? They laid palm branches on the road. It says they cut branches from the trees, laid branches on the road. They took off their coats. They laid those on the road, and they brought them into town. You say, why would he do that, friends? That's that's their version of the red carpet. We think of when we bring celebrities in, we roll out the red carpet for them. That's exactly what they were doing for Jesus that day. They're saying, we're rolling out the red carpet before you. And And they did that, and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Hosanna, friends, means this. It means save now. They were saying, now is the time. Save now. Blessed is he, the one who's come in the name of the Lord. It's time for him to save now. So the crowd saw him as his deliverer who would save them from the oppression of the Romans who, have, who were putting great restrictions on them. And they thought this, you know what? This Jesus is just like Moses. Moses came in and he delivered us from the Egyptian slavery and bondage. And this Jesus is just like him. He's going to come in and deliver us from the Roman oppression. So they saw Jesus as this great political figure who was going to set them free. And see, you understand something, church. The Jews were searching for someone to help them. They, were, they found themselves at Jesus' time under great oppression from the Roman government. They were heavily taxed. They were greatly restricted and they were at a time when, when crucifixion was normal. When the Romans didn't like what was going on, Jesus wasn't just a one-time deal. Remember, there were two people crucified on either side, or one on either side of Jesus when he died. That was a normal part of their existence in those days. When the Romans didn't like what you were doing, they took you out of town and they nailed you to a cross. They were living under this type of oppression and they were looking for, for a deliverer. And they desired for a new king to come. They desired a conqueror, someone to set them free. You see, they had confidence in their God. They knew that their God had done it before. If he could deliver them from Egypt when they were slaves, he surely could deliver them from Rome. And they knew that he could do it again. And, you know, they had seen this Jesus going and doing his ministry. They had seen his mighty works. They had seen him restore sight to the blind. They saw the evidence of him healing the lame. They saw him feed multitudes with a little tiny boy's lunch. You know, they heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. They listened as he spoke with authority, and they thought, surely, with this kind of power and this kind of authority, this, without a doubt, must be the one that God has sent to us to set us free. And understand something else. The timing for a deliverer to come was perfect. It was approaching the Passover. The Passover feast where every year they celebrated. You can remember, what was the Passover feast a celebration of? Do you remember what? When the death angel passed by. And 
had killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, but did not kill anybody who had the blood on the doorposts. And that was the final thing that the Lord did so that Pharaoh would say, go ahead, leave my country. It was the day they celebrated when they were set free. And that symbolic event was, was a sign that God could come and help them overthrow an oppressor who was great. And I believe they thought this now, just maybe now, Jesus would lead them from bondage to freedom. So when he got on that donkey that day and he rode into town, they hailed him as king. They laid the palm branches on the ground. They threw their coats out, giving him a red carpet entrance and says, this is the day. Friends, if we could go back in time, I have to imagine it would be one of the most glorious days ever. The other day I was watching uh, some uh, history channel again and I was watching about the end of World War II. And they were telling the stories of, of soldiers who had been in different places and one soldier had been wounded and he just happened to find himself in New York at Central Park on VJ Day. And they had all the films of that day and he said it was the most glorious day in his life. Because, and they showed the crowds, thousands and thousands and thousands of people running through the streets yelling, the war is over, and those famous picture of the soldier kissing the woman on the cover of Time magazine. That all happened on that day. The war is over. And they, and they celebrated, friends, I believe this day had to be something like that. These people had been waiting. They're saying this is a great day for our people because they believe that their years of waiting was over and Jesus really was their king. Can you imagine the excitement on that day? But I want you to think of something else. Those people on that day, as excited as they were, they didn't realize that the crucifixion was only a few days away. They didn't realize that within less than a week, Jesus, the one they're hailing as king, would ride into, ride into, rode into town on a donkey as a king, would be let out of town, and they would nail him to a cross. To them on that day, Israel was going to rise again under the leadership of a new king. They didn't know what lay ahead, but they knew that maybe there's going to be another parting of the Red Sea. Maybe there's going to be more provision in the wilderness. They didn't know what it was going to be, but they, they knew something miraculous was going to happen, or they believed it. But they didn't understand that just a few days away was the crucifixion. There was only one person there on that day who realized that that excitement that they felt on that day would be short-lived. There was only one person. There should have been more because just before they left to go to Jerusalem, Jesus, if you read the text, took his disciples aside and he said very clearly to them, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. He'll be delivered up to evil men and they will crucify him and he will die and he'll be raised three days later. But somehow they could not see what he was, the picture he was painting. They could not hear the message that he was saying. It made no sense to them. The words went in one ear and out the other. And on that day when everybody's celebrating, I think the disciples were saying, man, we've been walking with this guy for years and now it's payday. Now it's payday. He's going to, matter of fact, on the way into town, if you read the story, you got the mother of James and John coming to Jesus and saying, you know what, will you grant my boys to sit one on your left and one on your right when you get to town? They all thought he's coming just like Moses. He's setting up a new kingdom. They don't got to go to the promised land. They're in the promised land. He's going to drive Rome and their oppression out. They were all excited, looking to the future. But only one of them on that day understood that that excitement was going to be short-lived. And the one who understood it was Jesus himself. He knew that the same cheering crowd that hailed him as king would in a few days shall crucify him. Give us Barabbas. 
give us Barabbas, the son of this man who spits on the ground and says, I I curse the day he was born, a murderer, an insurrectionist. Give us a murderer, just a horrible man, a sinful man, and kill the one who's done nothing wrong. And just a few days later, they're going to do that. Jesus knew that the cross was only a few days away. He had tried to tell his disciples this, but they just didn't get it. And friends, here's something I want us to get today. That Jesus was about to go from the greatest day of his life, if you look at it in human terms, the greatest day in his life, hailed as king. He's going to go from the greatest day to the worst day of his life in just a span of a couple days. And here's what I believe God wants us to understand about that today. It's this. It's that all of it was God's plan. The great day was God's plan. And the low day was God's plan. The high points and the low points were all part of God's plan for Jesus. See, the events in Jesus' life were not the result of sin. He wasn't being punished for something he did wrong. He was sinless. They weren't the result of him missing the plan of God. And so often when we go through hard times, we think it must be that I'm sinning or I'm missing the plan of God. Well, we see in Jesus' situation that that's not the case. That the difficulty that he came did not result from those things from anything wrong, that he was simply living out the plan of God for his lives. And there's a spiritual truth that I believe the Lord wants you to understand today. Matter of fact, as I was preparing this message this week, I was wrestling with what to do and what to say. I very clearly believe the Lord said, there's a truth that I want you to point out to my children. And it's this truth. The truth is that living out God's plan for your life will have high points and have low points, and both are God's plan for you. And that's going to throw a wrench in some of your theology. Some of you say all the good things are from God, but something bad that comes, we even say this, we'll say, well, God might allow it, but God didn't really have the plan for me to go through that. I'm going to challenge your thinking today by looking at the life of Jesus and say the high points and the low points if it's not a result of sin, and it can be. We can walk from God and we can have all kinds of bad consequences because we walk outside the plan of God for our life. But if we're walking in the plan of God for our life, there will be high points and there will be low points and they are both God's plan for you. It was Jesus' situation, wasn't it? It was Jesus' situation. He one day is hailed as king. They're loving on him. And a few days later, they're shouting, crucify him. And they're nailing nails to his hands and and hanging him on a cross. And the scripture is very clear. This was the plan of God for the life of Christ. And friends, I found something. It is easy to believe God is with you and and he loves you and he's blessing you and and that he's in control of your life when everything is going great. When everything's going really well in our lives, it's very easy to say, God is great. I'm at a high point. This is Palm Sunday. It's the Palm Sunday of your life. You just got the raise. You just got the girl. She said yes. You know, you just got the promotion. You just got whatever. Your kids are doing great. Your your family's doing great. The car's not broke down. And you're just saying, you know what? You got a bigger tax return than you expected. And you're just saying, praise the Lord. It's good to walk in the blessings of the Lord. And I love to walk in the blessings of the Lord. I love every Palm Sunday experience of my life. But you know what's not so easy? It's not so easy at the low points. When everything seems to be going wrong and it feels like I'm being nailed to the cross. I don't really feel that the Lord 
just led me today to say that some of you feel like you're being nailed to a cross in your life right now, and you're saying, God, it doesn't make sense. God, I'm doing my best to live for you. God, I'm doing my best to, to honor you. I don't see that there's sin in my life, but God, I feel like I'm being nailed to the cross. I want to tell you something, friends. God's in it. I'm going to show you that from Scripture in just a moment. God is in it. And I know that's hard for us to swallow sometime. But friends, God has been speaking to me so much about this lately over the last number of years. And especially the last couple of months, He has been speaking to me about this principle and He has done something. He's parked me in a psalm. You ever have a situation in your life where, where all of a sudden God keeps taking you back to the same verses over and over and He's trying to teach you something? And He says, Mark, don't bother going on until you get this one straight. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 66, if you would, today. I'm going to be reading out of a different translation than I normally do. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, because that's the Bible I use for my devotions in the mornings, and that's the, the translation that the Lord has just keep me in lately. We're going to start off by reading in Psalm 66, verses 8 through 12, and then in a moment we'll go through the rest of it. But you're going to see something here that, for some of us, is going to be, it's going to be a challenge your theology. Because we say this, we say, you know, God's in the good times, and if the bad times happen, well, maybe somehow it's in God's permissive will, but God didn't really bring it. Anybody ever hear of a lady named Elizabeth Elliot? Remember, you ever see the movie At the End of the Spear? Mark, was it Mark Elliot? What's it? Whatever his name is, Elliot. Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was speared to death by the Alka Indians, and his wife was, you know, his wife at the time, he was in there killed, and she is a great woman of God and had a great ministry, and she used to have a radio broadcast. And in the beginning of that broadcast, she would say this. She would say, God has not, will not use somebody greatly until he's hurt them deeply. And I used to yell at the radio. I believe I'd say, Elizabeth, you're wrong. God, God will maybe allow hurt. God will maybe say, somehow am I letting that into my life? But she said, uh-uh. God will not use somebody greatly until he has hurt them deeply. And I thought, Elizabeth, you're nuts. I want to tell you something. My God says something different. He says she's right. And this is not fun theology. This isn't something I go, ooh, I want to just enjoy the fact that I've got to go through hard times. You're going to understand something. The hard times are great. Psalm 66, starting in verse 8, it says this. It says, let the whole world bless our God and loudly sing his praises. We love to do that in church, don't we? We come together and we bless our God and we loudly sing his praises. Verse 9, our lives are in his hands and he keeps our feet from stumbling. Isn't that good to know? As you walk with the Lord, your life is in his hands and he keeps your feet from stumbling. You're right in his will. Verse 10, you have tested us, O God. Does it say somebody else? You have have tested us, O God. You have purified us like silver. You captured us in your net, in your net. You laid the burden of slavery on our backs. You put a leader over us. You made people ride over our heads. We went through fire and flood. Just stop right there for a moment. That doesn't sound really great, does it? It doesn't say Satan has tested us, Satan has purified us like silver, Satan has captured us in the net, Satan has laid us into slavery, Satan has had people ride over our heads. It says you have tested us, you have purified us, you have captured us, you have laid a burden of slavery on our backs. 
you made people ride over our heads and we went through the fire and the flood. But then you know what I love? Maybe I told you this before, but I've, I've preached this in the past and this is one of the places I, ought, I need to add to my list. In the past I preached a sermon called God Loves Big Butts. And this is one of the big butts right here. But you brought us to a place of abundance. But you brought us to a place of great abundance. Friends, look at this. Verse 9. It says we are right in God's hands. I love the fact that God has the, the buts. It's going this way. But for God. God has a plan. You know, we're in his hands. He's in control. You know, if we're submitted to him, we can trust that we are in his hands and nothing in our lives is happening outside his control. And it says if we're living in that situation, look what, look what can and will happen. He says we're going to go through times of testing. We're going to go through times of discipline. He's going to turn up the fire of the silversmith and he's going to purify us. He's going to put us in a situation that's going to cause all the junk to be burned off in our lives. He's going to make, refine us so that we're better, we're more pure. And the result, verse, the second half of verse 12, he says, and he's going to bring us to a place of great abundance. He takes us into the hard times to purify us so that we will end up better in the ends. Friends, God leads us into and through times of difficulty to make us better. Jesus needed to go through the crucifixion to get to the resurrection. He had to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He had to die if our sins were going to be forgiven. He had to go through the resurrection. Remember, just a few days earlier, he prayed, God, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But Lord, not my will, but thine be done. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, God, I don't want to go through this. There's a hard time coming. But he said, God, you know what? I'll walk through the hard time. I'll walk through it because I know what lays on the other side. I have to go through the crucifixion to get to the resurrection. And I believe this. I believe some of you are at a low point right now. And I want to encourage you. God is working through it to make you better. God is working through the low point to make you better. It's a season of purification. It's a season of discipline. Understand, it's not a season of punishment. If you are living, walking with the Lord to the best of your ability, you've examined yourself and said, I'm not walking in sin. It's a time then, not of punishment. God's not about trying to just get his ounce of flesh out of you. It's a time of discipleship. And there's a huge difference. It's discipline. We discipline our children to make them disciples. We do not punish them just to get them to say, you you paid a price for what you did wrong. We discipline. That's what God does. He disciplines. He causes us to be disciples. He takes us through paths that make us better. And I've learned something in my life. Rarely do we get better in the good times. You think about the good times in your life. Rarely do we get better. Rarely are we challenged in the good times. Usually it takes the struggle that turns us more fully to God, that demands our full attention, that makes everything else become nothing in our lives, and we just simply get tunnel vision and cry out to God. And that's what the rest of the psalm says. Look back at Psalm 66 with me, starting at verse 13. This is wonderful. Because 
Friends, guess what? People are people, and people have been pretty much the way they are since the day God created us, and we've all gone through the same struggles, and God's given us this treasure chest of his word to reveal to us that when we're thinking, like, how can this be that God reveals? Guess what? I've got people who spelled it out in their lives, how God showed them what he was doing, and that's what we have here, starting in verse 13. It says, now I come, remember he's just talking about, he's gone through all these trials, but God, you've brought us into abundance, and now he's going to talk about the hard times. Verse 13, now I come to your temple with burnt offerings to fulfill the vows that I made. Yes, the sacred vows that I made when I was in deep trouble. So he's in a hard time and he's making vows. That is why I'm sacrificing burnt offerings to you, the best of my rams as a pleasing aroma and a sacrifice of bulls and male goats. Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. What he did. I cried out to him for help in that deep trouble. I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed the sins in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen, and he paid attention to my prayers. Praise God, who did not ignore my prayers or withdraw his unfailing love from me. Look what it says. He says, I'm coming with this offering in verse 13. And the reason I'm coming with this offering, verse 14, is because this offering is the fulfillment of a vow I made to you, God, when I was in deep trouble. You know what? He didn't make the vow to God and everything was going good. Things had to seem like it was, like it was um, uh, the crucifixion day to be in deep trouble. He, had to, he wasn't at a Palm Sunday when he's in deep trouble saying, God, I'm making a vow to you. But he was in the deep trouble and he cries out to God when everything else in life seems unimportant. The one thing that's important is you, you cry out to God. And in that valley, he cries out to God. And now he's fulfilling the promise that he made, that vow he made when he's calling out. Friends, when difficulty comes and you've examined your heart, you've confessed sin that might be there, and you see no reason for the trouble, then let that drive you to your knees and ask God, God, What are you trying to teach me? God, what do you want to teach me today? Look at the attitude of the psalmist that he had during this time of testing. Verse 17 will change your life if you'll apply it. It says, For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. Isn't that amazing? What a contradiction. I cried out to him for help in a very hard time, praising him as I spoke. Cry to help for God in the hard times. But remember, he's in it with you and praising him as you speak. Friends, it is possible to look adversity in the eye and say, Lord, bring it on. Make me better. And I'll tell you from personal experience, that's what the Lord has been challenging me to do over these last number of months in my life. He's saying, Mark, when are you going to grow up to the point to be like the psalmist? When are you going to say, Lord, bring it on? Bring it on, God, whatever it takes. Jesus said that. He got the donkey And put the wheels in motion to have the final week of his life that would start with the crucifixion and start with the the, uh, um, triumphant entry, have the crucifixion and end up in the resurrection. He's the one who set the gears in motion. He said, bring it on, God. He understood that you've got to go through the difficulties in your lives and those difficulties are in the plan of God. And friends, that's what I would challenge you to do. In times of trouble... It's not time to get angry at God. 
It's not time to, to whine and complain and say, God, you're nowhere to be found. It's time to go deeper with God than you've ever gone before. It's a time to allow him to refine you, for him to bring into your life true abundance. That's what they said. He said, you brought us through all this, and we came to a time of abundance. It's time for him to bring you to a time of greater abundance. And I'm going to share something, friends. The abundance that the world calls abundance is a second-rate substitute for what God has for abundance. The stuff of this world, the things, the accolades, the, 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 all the things that the world says are so important, those are second-rate substitutes for the great abundance that God has for you. The great abundance that God has for you is a greater intimacy with him. The greater abundance that God has for you is greater holiness. The greater abundance that God has for you is that you have a confidence in God that when you walk through troubles, you can say, I know my Redeemer liveth. And he's walking with you through everything. That's an abundance that the rest of the world doesn't have. And that abundance only comes through walk, as you walk through trials with him. He wants us to discover his truth, that in his presence is fullness of joy. And in his right hand are joys forevermore. That's what he wants us to understand today. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And that any other thing in the world that may bring satisfaction temporarily, but it doesn't bring the joy of the Lord. And anything that drives us closer to him, friends, is a pathway to joy. So when the psalmist sat in this dark time, we don't know what that dark time was, but he cries out to God with praise on his lips. And he makes vows to God, saying, God, if you get me through this, I'm going to sacrifice in the temple to you. And the Lord brings him through this. And he knows God better than he ever knew God before. He's got a joy that's, that's, that's unmovable, a joy of saying, you know what? No matter what's going on around me in this world, I know my Redeemer liveth, and I'm walking with my Redeemer. Friends, when you have that, you have the pathway to joy. Anything that drives us closer to God is a pathway to joy. In Jesus' life, he walked through the ups and he walked through the downs. And as you in your life walk through the ups and walk through the downs, you can know this. Jesus is walking with you. And what he wants to do in your life is you go through the ups and you go through the downs. In the ups, friends, praise him. And in the downs, what did the psalmist say to do? Praise him. And say, God, if there's something that's going to go on, that's going to test my mettle, that's going to challenge everything within me, bring it on. God, I welcome it into my life if it's going to make me better. Does that mean it's fun? No. Does that mean you don't waver at times? doesn't mean that at all. You know what it means? It means that we focus our attention on him. And we say, God, whatever comes, I'm going to praise you, I'm going to walk with you, I'm going to trust you. And you're going to see me through. And you know what? He brings you out of that. And he brings you into a time of abundance. And just shortly down the road in your life after that, you know what's going to happen? Somebody else is going to be going through a hard time. They're going to be going through maybe a circumstance just like yours or somewhat similar. And you're going to put your arm around them. Just the way Jesus puts his arm around you. You're going to say, you know what? I know you're going through a hard time. But God hasn't forgot about you. God still loves you. He's going to bring you through this. He's going to make you better. He's going to bring you into a time of incredible abundance. The abundance that may or may not have the world's abundance, but it'll have the greatest abundance there is, knowing that you're in his presence. 
And in His presence, friends, is fullness of joy. And that's what God has for you. That's the abundance that God wants for every one of us. Amen.